Welcome to Season 2 of Purdue University College of Sciences Superheroes of Science Podcast. I'm Stephen. And I'm Sarah. We will be discussing anything and everything related to science. If you have a science question, tweet it to us at Purdue SOS, and we will try and find someone to answer it for you. Today on Superheroes of Science, we have Dr. Janie Sparks, Stable Isotope Specialist at the Purdue Stable Isotope Facility. So welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for agreeing to come. Yeah. And I don't... I, we were discussing, I think these are interviews. These still classified yeah. as interviews? It's an interview. Oh, it, yeah, it's yeah. just like informal mm-hmm. discussions about things you do. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's sure. still an interview, I think? I think that counts. Okay. Think, yeah, we're I taking so. it. Yeah. All right. Well, your title alone? Stable isotope specialist. I yeah. love this. Yeah. It's, but what, I have no idea isotope? what that means. What's an isotope? Talk to people like me. Yeah. Small words. <laughs> so uh, you guys had Dr. Lisa Welp on, yes. uh, and I think she gave like a really good overview of the kind of things she's interested in. And stable isotopes can tell you a lot of different things, and I think she referred to them as like kind of chemical tracers, which mm-hmm. is helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way I usually have people think about it is to think about carbon. So a lot of people, and they do science, maybe they've heard the term carbon-14, they think, oh, radiocarbon dating. So carbon-14 is an isotope, but it's not stable. It's going to slowly degrade. It's got that Mm. half-life, which makes it really useful for dating, not so useful for stable isotope work. But we also have carbon-12 and carbon-13. So your 12, you've got your regular six six neutrons, six protons. How do you think about that? Um, And the only difference is for 13 is you've got an extra neutron hanging around. So it makes it ever so slightly heavier. And we have different processes you know, in our own bodies, in plants, you know, in the atmosphere, and they can be selective. Like, I'm going to maybe get rid of the heavier isotope, or I'm going to discriminate against it, or I'm going to take in more of the light isotope. And over time, we get these interesting discriminations, and so that's what we're essentially looking for. And we're not just looking at carbon, though. There's a variety of stable isotopes. You had also talked about, I think it was chomps. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, so the way you can think about common light-stable isotopes is CHONs, so carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and sulfur. And these are the most common ones. There are others, uh, but we can do all of those here in our facility on a variety of different materials. That's awesome. And when you say see the isotope, how do you see the isotope? So it's not so much seeing it with our eyes, Mm -hmm. um, but we have instruments. So we use an isotope ratio mass spectrometer, and what we do is we convert or whatever our sample is, if we're analyzing soil, if we're analyzing plants, into a form we can analyze. So typically that's a gas. And we have what's called a source, and we have this little tiny filament, and essentially it's bombarding it uh, with electrons. And so we're ionizing this gas, and then we have this big magnet that is separating out those different masses, and then these fun little cups that capture everything, and then the software says, I'm going to do some interpretation, and then I'm going to tell you what your result is. And with these different masses, for an example, let's go back to carbon. Mm -hmm. So if we're thinking about carbon, we're going to be thinking about CO2. And the masses we're going to be interested in are 44, 45, and 46. So if you think with carbon, we have carbon-12 and carbon-13, mm-hmm. and then we also have oxygen. So we have 16, 17, and 18. So if you have these different combinations of 12 and 13, 16, 18, and 17, you get to these different weights, the 44, mm-hmm. 45, and 46. 
Um, there are other ones, but because they're really, really small, we don't worry about them, we just kind of ignore them. So we're looking at these different ratios with these different masses, and we're comparing it to other materials. So we, there's always these standards that we have to pay attention to. And there is kind of an international group that says, hey, everybody compare your data to these exact standards. So internationally, everybody's the same. So I can analyze something here, somebody can analyze someone, something in Austria, in New Zealand, and we're all gonna have the same data. Awesome. So there's a lot that goes into, how do we even get this data? Like mm -hmm. what, it seems like a magic black box, kind of. Mm -hmm. I noticed the mic was facing the wrong way. Ah. I did not catch that one, so <laughs> I'm sorry. I wanna make sure we can hear you. Yeah. Okay. I got distracted, sorry. No, it's okay. It's a lot. Yeah. I, the 44 and stuff, but so that is just a carbon and an oxygen together? A certain isotope of a carbon? So, yeah. So and a certain isotope of? Yeah, so if you, if you think about CO2, mm -hmm. you're going to have one carbon and two oxygen. Okay. So if you're just looking at, um, like, carbon-12 plus oxygen-16 and a second oxygen-16, mm -hmm. you're going to have one type of weight. Mm -hmm. But because we're looking at these different isotopes, maybe we have C13 and then two 18s. Mm -hmm. So you have to, you can see like, okay, what are the possibilities and what is the typical abundance of these? So what do we want to collect? What's important? Mm -hmm. um, to think about another gas, we also analyze nitrogen. So we would be looking at N2. So in this case, we're looking at the difference between uh, nitrogen 14 and nitrogen 15. So we could have two 15s, so we'd look at mass 30, or we could have two 14s, so 28. So okay. we scan for 28, 29, and 30 to kind of get the full range. It, it, okay. What are we trying to find out? What, so what? It, it, why is it different? I, there's like four questions there in one, isn't it? Yeah, so what's, what's something you're interested in in the world? In the entire world? Like there, Rainbows? Okay, I can't, I can't help with rainbows. Yes. <laughs> let's say, okay, let's say you, are either of you vegetarian or vegan? No. Do either no. of you eat a lot of fish? My wife's a vegetarian. Okay, that's helpful. Can we start there? Does you that can help? start there, that's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Steven so, is helpful. <laughs> you are quite helpful. So one of the things we can think about is some places are really interested in food webs. And when you are increasing your trophic level, so if you eat a cow versus mm -hmm. eating a fish that's eaten a ton of other fish, we can see this isotopically. So if you're eating a fish that has eaten five fish below it, we've, you're increasing your trophic level each time. And isotopically, you might be changing your isotope value. So if we were to analyze your bones or yeah. your hair compared to your wife's bones or hair, we could tell using carbon and nitrogen that she was a vegetarian and yet you were eating meat. Because you're going wow. to have, to, even if though you're drinking the same water, you're living in the same house, you're eating the same foods, yeah. if you are still consuming meat products, we're going to be able to see the difference. Wow. So there's interesting things. If you also think about um, maternity and prenatal, mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of interest in looking at weaning children because it's essentially a child feeding off the mother. Mm -hmm. So they're going to be a higher trophic level, even though they're consuming what the mother was consuming. Uh, we're going to see some isotopic differences. 
And so trophic level, what's, what's that? Uh, so if you think about like somebody eating a plant mm -hmm. versus eating a cow that's eating a plant. Okay. So you're, you're one step away from just eating the grass. Oh, okay. So that would be like a trophic level difference or like a bear eating that cow. I don't know that mm -hmm. bears eat cows, but you know, like yeah, some, a carnivore eating the, mm -hmm. one of those herbivores. That's another trophic level up. So some people are really interested in food webs. Um, other people, like here at the Stable Isotope, you know, Dr. Welp's really interested in thinking about what's happening in the atmosphere, what's happening with water. Um, I come from a background of archaeology, and so I was really interested in how people interact with the landscape. So I analyzed a bunch of animal bones from some archaeological sites and tried to determine with stable isotopes, can I see where these animals came from? Were they coming from close to where the people were living? Were they coming further away? How far were people hunting? Can you tell that by looking at the isotopes? Yeah, in different ways. So one of the things I looked at is I did some work during grad school on the island of Trinidad. And there's a ton of archaeological history on the island. It's really great. And I looked at animal bones from three different sites along a coast. So right by the ocean. Yeah. And using carbon, nitrogen, and sulfur on the animal bones, I would look to see, are these animals living near the coast? Are they consuming things near the coast? Okay. Or are they consuming things further towards the inland? So let's take sulfur, for example. Plants need sulfur. They just like, they need it. And they take it in. Um, and they can take SO2 in through their leaves, or they can take in sulfates through their roots. Mm -hmm. Now, the stable isotope value um, of oceans worldwide is about plus 21 per mil, and this is fairly uniform. So if you have ocean spray coming onto plants, plants are going to take advantage of that. And you'll see kind of this degra degrading as you start on a coast, maybe you've got plants that are like plus 18, and as it moves further inland away from the sea spray, they're going to be taking in local sources. So maybe it's anthropogenic, maybe it's natural sulfur occurring. And so you'll start seeing different values. You won't be seeing this uniform blanketing of ocean spray. So if my animals were eaten on a coastal location, but they have isotope values that are indicating, nope, they're from much further inland, how did they get there? Were people going and hunting? Were they naturally drawn to the area? Those are the kinds of things I was thinking about. Wow. Yeah. So it's like you are what you eat goes to a whole new level with you. Right. Well, and that's that's actually a really funny joke for people to think about this. They say you are what you eat plus or minus three to four per mil because of that. <laughs> <laughs> so I had, I had friends that would get that on shirts. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. Um, but that there's a wide range of things. So um, national labs like mm -hmm. the uh, like the FDA makes mm -hmm. use of stable isotopes. So if you think about honey, adulterating honey is a really big business. How do we know if honey is counterfeit or if it's real? Yeah. Um, well, you can fake honey? You can. Yeah. So, I didn't even know that. So honey, so if we think about plants and how mm -hmm. they grow and photosynthetic pathways, you have C3 plants and you have C4 plants. Um, there's some other type of pathways, but we don't need to, we don't need to think about this. What do you mean by C3 and C4? So how does a plant take in okay. stuff and like the internal pathways, um, that it's, it's using to make energy. And okay. there's a couple different divergent pathways that they do this. And some of them discriminate, remember we're talking about those heavier light isotopes, discriminate against one or the other. 
So if we, like atmospheric CO2, I think is like negative eight per mil right now. If we were to analyze, like I would go out and I would just analyze a leaf from a tree. It would probably be about, well, maybe negative 23, negative 26 per mil. So it's a very big jump. We've discriminated against um, that heavier isotope versus something like corn, which is a C4, and maybe it's around negative 12 per mil. So it's only a, you know, a smaller shift. So what we see with honey, um, I just actually attended a talk recently about this, is we have just like bees grabbing the pollen. Okay. We would expect that C3 signal of like, mm -hmm. hey, this is pure honey right from here. But if you're adding high fructose corn syrup to that, that's a very different signal. So now you've changed the stable isotope value. So if you go and analyze a ton of honeys, you should see something very specific. But what happens is people are adulterating honey. And so, okay, how do we track this down? What's the most efficient way? Um, the talk I went to, they also talked about lemon juice and maple syrup, which never even thought people would try to fake lemon juice. That's crazy to me. Yeah. Um, but these are, like I said, stable isotopes, wide ranging things. Wow. wow. Yeah. So, all right, so the lab that you're in charge of upstairs. Yes. Well, I guess at this point it's downstairs. It is downstairs. Uh, <laughs> where we are at this moment. Like, where am I? Um, what all, what different types of, I mean, it's just, is it just the people at Purdue doing research, like Dr. Welp, with mm -hmm. the water things, or do people send things to you also? Yeah, so we yes, do a little, we, yeah, we do <laughs> yeah. a little bit of everything. Um, so the stable isotope facility consists of Dr. Lisa Welp, Dr. Tim Philly, and Dr. Greg Mikulski. So these are the three PIs of the lab. Um, and then we have all their associated grad students, postdocs, working on a variety of projects. We are also a contract facility. So if somebody else at Purdue wants to analyze samples, they can come to me. We also take things from outside Purdue. Uh, internally, we've taken stuff from, we have a really good relationship with the agronomy department mm -hmm. because uh, Tim Philly is, is he adjunct or is he co-appointment? One I, of the two. I know he's listed, yeah, yeah. in both places. Um, I've run some samples for students over in Botany. Um, it just kind of depends. Uh, mm -hmm. I think we've worked with biology some as well. So, yep, for a price, I can analyze pretty much anything. <laughs> um, but then the three PIs have their own set projects. So Lisa's really interested in waters. Tim's group is interested in soils and they think about how carbon moves through soils. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Mikulski's group does a lot of work with nitrates, um, thinking about stuff in our waters and how does it get there and runoff. Oh. Um, so we're pretty busy most of the yeah. time. <laughs> oh, it sounds like it. So how did the samples generally arrive to you? So we do, it depends on the sample. Mm -hmm. So we can do things like soils and plants for carbon and nitrogen, mm -hmm. uh, but we can also do waters. So if you have water and you mm -hmm. want us to analyze it, we can do that depending on what isotope you want. So. Mm -hmm. Dr. Uh, Lisa Welp's machine is a, a laser machine, so it works a little bit differently than the uh, IRMS that I talked about earlier. I think she gave a brief description of lasers doing fun things, bouncing around through the gas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you could give me two mils of water, okay, and I can analyze that. If you want me to analyze soil, you can give me that as well. If it's finely ground, maybe about 20 milligrams. Uh, so it doesn't take much. So, yeah, you're talking like, I mean, that's oh. like a big drop of water. I mean, if you, like three or four drops of water. Yeah. So in, in, wow. these, these machines are really great. 
and that we don't need a ton of sample and you can actually overload it if you give it too much. Oh. Um, but we have these really tiny tin capsules that we put like our soils and plants into, mm -hmm. partly because we have to we have to prepare all the samples. So most of these machines, they're not just one unit. They're like two different units mm -hmm. because how do we take that soil sample and I need it into a gas? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, how do I do that? Well, I have to combust it. So I have a series of columns to like make it just go up in flames. Mm -hmm. And then I have ones to remove moisture. I have ones to reduce down gases I don't want. Um, essentially make it a gas, clean it up, prepare it for the system to actually analyze it. Wow. And so then when you were talking about the numbers, like negative 12 per ml, mm -hmm. is that what you were saying? Yeah. So different compounds that you're analyzing will have different reference numbers with those? Is that how that works? Or how do those relate then to the sample that you're analyzing? Yeah. So what we have is, let's say we're going to do, I'm going to do a run of like 20 soils mm -hmm. uh, today. I'm actually doing that right now. No. <laughs> um, doing a run of 20 soils. We have to do almost one-to-one -one with okay. a standard. Okay. So I have a reference soil, mm -hmm. and I know the exact stable isotope value of it. I know exactly what it should be. So at the end of the day, when I'm done, I can say, okay, this standard should be this. Mm -hmm. Let's shift everybody else to that international standard um, to make sure that I'm the same as everyone else. Okay. So you're, it, and that's a calibration thing. It is a calibration. Okay. So we have to correct for a variety of things. So we have to, it's called scaling or normalization to make sure that we're on the same scale as everybody else. Mm -hmm. We also have to correct for size. You're not going to always have the same amount of carbon or nitrogen in every single sample, even mm -hmm. though we try to be consistent. Mm -hmm. um, and isotope value can change based on weight. And then we also have to correct for drift. A lot of times these runs are going for like 13, 14 hours. And because oh, wow. you're analyzing such tiny amounts, the machine can just ever so slightly shift. So we yeah. have one sample that's kind of evenly spaced throughout the run to say, were you the same at the beginning as you are at the end? If not, that's okay. As long as you're consistent and we can model that, we can correct all the data. Uh, yeah. So half of this is, let's actually analyze it. And then there's maybe 45 to minutes to about an hour of like post-correction stuff that I have to do before you would ever actually see your data. Okay. okay. And so, so once you've run that, you're kind of cleaning up the data to make sure it's based off calibration, make sure it's all correct? Yeah, I'm looking, looking at those standards of it should be this, is it? If it's not, okay, did some, what went wrong? Mm -hmm. maybe, it's, maybe it's just, hey, the machine slightly decided to shift. Or maybe something's gone terribly low. Maybe something broke. Um, these are things that can happen, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But we, we do regular maintenance. Um, so things are usually pretty happy. When mm -hmm. something goes wrong, though, it can sometimes be really bad. Because <laughs> 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 there's so many small, delicate parts with these. Mm -hmm. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've seen it for years. I mean, I've them uh, taking apart. I've seen mm -hmm. some of your predecessors and stuff. I've been up there when they've been taking that apart and I was like afraid to breathe too close to them. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, oh, those are little bitty things they're looking at and yeah. Yeah, so I'm like, whoo, mercy. I don't think I have the precision skills to be <laughs> able to do that. I'm a little too much of a bull in the China shop guy. I mean I can teach you how to weigh really tiny amounts of stuff if you yeah. want to learn. <laughs> <laughs> and so what um when you said combust, 
Mm-hmm. Right, so it's yeah, I heard that. So you're, yeah. you're you blow things on miniature scale. You blow things up. Yeah. So we have um, our our one machine to prepare our soils and plants is called our elemental analyzer. So I have a very hot column sitting at a thousand degrees C. Oh my gosh. Oh, oh it gets it gets hotter uh, <laughs> because I have a series of chemicals in there to help me combust but I actually shoot a measure of oxygen in there as well. So the oxygen comes in, my sample drops, you see a big flash. And so if you, there's actually a little window, you can put your ear, your ear, <laughs> you can put your eye down and watch that spark happen, which is perfect because we need a full conversion. If I only slightly combust my sample, that's no good, I'm gonna have to redo it because I'm missing part of that, I'm gonna change the isotopic value. I have to fully convert that solid sample to a gas. So with that oxygen, we think it probably gets up closer to 1800. So it's, it's really, it's really combusting. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so have you ever gotten results in, your, in there, like the scientists you're working with or yourself, you guys like, uh, this just doesn't make sense and you redo it, but you find out it was right? Redo it and find out it was right. The closest thing would be enriched samples. Um, okay. So we do some of this. Um, so we have a grad student who is really interested in adding like artificial nitrogen enrichment to mm-hmm. a soil and moving his plants and seeing what's tracing essentially the movement of that enriched value. The problem was the first time he did it, uh, we weren't quite sure what to expect, and it was off the charts. Like I had to completely change all of our columns, all of our chemicals, because it just, it saturated everything. And it was, it was unlike anything, I don't work a lot with enriched stuff. Uh, It was unlike anything I'd ever seen. So I was like, oh, this isn't good. We need to scale it back. Um, so being, being a little bit surprised if I don't have the full history, mm-hmm. in general though, we kind of know what to expect. You know, the, the stable isotope facility has been here, I don't know when it was officially founded, um, but all the PIs have, you know, their own area of expertise. And so mm-hmm. it would be unusual if it was something that none of them had ever seen before, just cause they've kind of seen a little bit of everything. Fair enough. What's been your favorite sample that you've analyzed so far? Do you have a favorite or like a, a top three? Or? A top three. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm not like a big. That. I'm I'm not a big fan of soils because okay. um, they they're so hard. They tend to have low carbon, low nitrogen, which mm-hmm. means you're weighing out large amounts. Um, and the thing you have to think about is if I'm running 50 samples, well, not yes, everything combusts. Mm-hmm. All that all that stuff I'm interested in but you build up this layer of ash in the columns, which means you're no longer being as efficient. And so as soils, we build that up quicker, so I have to do much shorter runs. Versus plants, where I'm weighing like two milligrams. It's very clean, it's wonderful. I can run like 90 plants, no problem. (laughs) Um, I did a lot of work in grad school with bone collagen. I'm I'm a bit partial to that. Okay. uh, Just because I think it's neat. (laughs) Just eat what's what kind of specimens for the bone collagen? So, so like, that's, I was analyzing animals. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So I think I ranged from turtles to armadillos. Um, I think I might have had a dolphin at one point. Oh um, a little bit of everything. Anything that was native to Trinidad wow. <laughs> um, okay. was kind of analyzing, which is fun because like the, the preparation is kind of interesting because 
you've got bone, so it's made of, you've got your collagen, mm -hmm. and you've got your hydroxyapatite. But you don't want the hydroxyapatite. So you kind of want to distill down to just get the collagen and then kind of purify it. Uh, and so when you're done, it can actually kind of look kind of like cotton candy, oh, wow. <laughs> which is very bizarre, actually. This is bone <laughs> collagen. It shouldn't look like cotton candy. <laughs> But I, it was projects that I was really into, so. Oh, cool. So a, a career path. What mm -hmm. has, I'm not sure what all you'd need to be able to know to be able to do stuff like this. Oh, I don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know it apparently, though. I'm still learning. Um, so I didn't come into stable isotopes until PhD work. Okay. Uh, I kind of fell into it. Um, the advisor that I was working with had done, was very much like a stable isotope ecologist. And so I kind of pick things up with her, and I thought, oh, you know, this is, you know, there's meat. There's a lot of questions you can kind of analyze. What, mm -hmm. what can we do? And I realized during grad school that I also loved being in the lab. And hey, being in the lab's kind of neat. You know, what's the actual process to make sure we get good data? You know, it's one thing to think about, oh, oh what's my research question? But like, mm -hmm. how do you know to trust your data? Well, what were you doing in the lab? And that's the nice thing about being here is I'm in the lab, usually part of every day and figuring out, okay, is everybody running the way they're supposed to? Is anything happening that I need to help out with? And learning about the instruments themselves and mm -hmm. how they actually do the analyzing. You know, it's not a magic box. You know, mm -hmm. Something's happening. What is that process? Oh, cool. That's yeah. awesome. So if I were listening to this and I'm like, okay, what she does is really cool. I want to play that game. Hmm. What uh, advice for a high school student? Advice for high school students? Um, in general, don't panic. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, don't panic. don't panic. I mean, I, I've done something different for every degree, and I ended up here, and that's cool. Um, if it's a, some places will have stable isotope classes, so a lot of the big universities have a stable isotope facility. They're not always as big as we are because mm -hmm. they, there's a full-time me. Um, and a lot of, but a, there are a lot of other universities that also have somebody like me in my position to help out in the lab. But any place with a stable isotope facility probably offers a very basic stable isotopes class. Um, and so that can be helpful to take or just know if somebody in your department does and just ask like, hey, this sounds interesting. Um, there's always room for undergrads who are interested to work in the lab. We've even had a high school student before oh, doing wow. a little project. Wow. Yeah. Um, so professors are always delighted to like respond to emails. So if you're interested, like just to email a professor, say, hey, I read about your research or I heard about this class. I'd love to take it when are you know, offering it or do you have recommendations? Mm -hmm. um, most people will be glad to answer those questions. That's, oh, see, that's very that's cool. A great point, yeah. yeah. And it's, I like to, it's like I have in my email now uh, a young lady asking, hey, I'd like to mm -hmm. uh, talk to someone about this project. And I'd send it to some of our faculty, but none of them do that. Mm -hmm. And so it's doing a little research to find out where has faculty, mm -hmm. regardless of how close they are to you. Right. Mm -hmm. It's doing a little research to find out where has someone researching something you're interested in, and then reaching out to that person, I think is just excellent advice. Yeah, yeah. and it, it can be hard. So, I mean, you know, we're an earth science department, but as I mentioned, we analyze stuff for people in agronomy, mm -hmm. uh, people in biology. And so if you're interested in stable isotopes, it might not 
the home base might not be in an earth science department. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It might be in an anthropology department because a lot of archaeological and anthropological people are interested in stabilized topes. Yeah. Uh, it could just be in a full ecology group. So don't just look at only, like, oh, it has to be in a geology or earth science department. It could be elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there might be other professors who can tell you more about that outside of the department that you're focusing on. Yes. Yeah. And I'm listening to this, and I just think that's fascinating that, that it could be located in all these different disciplines because I know yeah. for high school students, I, I'm guessing, and, and having taught high school chemistry, that they're hearing the word isotope and thinking, well, yeah, but that's chemistry. And so yeah. that it's located in, well, for example, here it's in the earth, earth science, um, mm -hmm. that it could be in different places. I think that's kind of neat. It just shows that, um, you know, the, the different disciplines that are all involved in mm -hmm. using that. So. Yeah, like when usually when like when I asked you like what's a question you're interested in because yeah. it's so wide ranging. I mean, you want to think about forensics. Um, I think the FBI has an explosive stable isotope lab where they analyze oh, wow. explosives. Mm -hmm. um, the DEA is interested in tracking where do drugs come from. Mm -hmm. How oh, can we wow. do that stable using stable isotopes? Yeah. Um, other things, so uh, forensic anthropologists. You mm -hmm. know, if we find somebody and we don't know who they are, can we figure out where they came from? Where, how do we get this person back to their family? These are like people I know right now answering these kinds of questions oh all over the world. I mean, mm -hmm. there's tons of stabilized tow people everywhere. Oh, so that's so cool. That's really cool. <laughs> well, yeah, it's kind of scary. My daughter's going to be really excited about this. She loves forensics, and so oh, she's yeah. going to hear this. I'm, that's what I want to do. Yeah, everything I heard yeah. at the beginning you talk about, I'm like, well, that sounds like something the FBI would do. Right, it is. Oh, we found a hair, so let's analyze where this person came from. And, and yeah. you can analyze hair. That's that's totally doable. Wow. That's, that just blows my mind. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but, I mean, how close could uh, you could, I know you could do my diet, but mm -hmm. if, if we took... I still have a little hair here and there. If we took some of my hair, how close would that, what all could you tell from that with your lab? What all could you? Oh, I haven't analyzed hair myself, so I'm not sure what compounds we could look at. Possibly carbon and nitrogen? I'm not sure. Um, but I know people that have done things like fingernails. If you want really quick turnaround, you mm -hmm. can think about blood. Um, because all different parts of your body have different turnover rates. Okay. So if we think about your teeth, mm -hmm. where were you when you got your adult permanent teeth? Were you here in Indiana or were you living somewhere else? Well, I was in Indiana. Okay. Yeah. Were you here in Indiana? Yeah, Indiana. Okay. That's yeah. not helpful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> somewhere else. Let's say, let's say you grew up in Florida. Okay. Um, and you moved here to Indiana when you were like 18. If we were to analyze your teeth, versus like your bone, they would show two very different signals because your teeth, when your teeth emerge, like the signal stopped okay. versus your bone is still in a constant turnover rate. It's really slow, wow. but we hmm. would see two different signals. So we could say, hey, he's migrated from somewhere else. So that's hmm. how they, some people use um, stabilized systems to think about like animal movement, animal migration mm -hmm. of the different turnover rates between different systems. Oh. Yeah. What has the what would be the fastest thing? I'm trying to think. Okay, what grows? What do I get rid of the fastest? Is it hair? Is it fingernails? Um, I'm not sure the turnover rate of blood, but blood would be pretty probably high up. I know people that analyze urine, so mm -hmm. um, I'd mention that some people use different types of tracers. Mm -hmm. So if you are drinking water from one type of source and then you switch over to another type of source, and we were analyzing urine the entire time, I think we would see a very quick turnover rate because 
what's coming out, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, coming in yeah. has to come out. Mm -hmm. So I think that that would be really quick to see. Wow. <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah. yeah. It's very cool. And we, we appreciate you taking the time to kind of give us yeah. a window into mm -hmm. the lab, what you do, and all the potential possibilities in this field. Yeah. And people, I mean, people are welcome to just email me. I'm a person. Oh, awesome. Uh, and I, yeah. You're I a don't, person? I'm a person. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't know a lot, but I mean, I can usually pinpoint people and say, hey, this is kind of interesting. Maybe you should talk to this person or, yeah, come on by the lab. I'll show you what it looks like. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. An outstanding on review. On iTunes or your preferred podcast player. Tweet us your science questions. At Purdue SOS. Until next time, be super. And remember... You are someone's hero. Boiler up! Hammer down.